and welcome to This Mom Loves. I'm Kate Wynn, a mom, a teacher, a writer, blogger, sometimes TV guest, and also now a podcaster. And this is the beginning of season two of This Mom Loves, the podcast. You're listening to episode 13. Today on the show, my special guest will be Alana McGinn of Goodnight Sleep Sight. She's a sleep coach and educator, also the host of a podcast as well called This Girl Loves Sleep. And she's answering all of our sleep-related questions from our newborns right through to adult sleep tips. I'm going to share um, some information about how I do a social media clean out in my favorite things today, as well as tell you about my new heated vest, which I love. In the lifestyle section, I'm going to talk about tips for treating head lice as well. So it's going to be, uh, be a great show. Starting with my favorite things today. Social media sometimes can be so overwhelming, and I find when you're following so many people, it can just get to be a lot. So every so often, I do a bit of a social media clean out. There are two apps that I use for this. For Twitter, I use one called Crowdfire, and for Instagram, I use an app on my phone called Unfollow. And what I do with these is... I'll go through and see who's not following me. And sometimes, of course, there are high-profile people who are never going to follow me back, and I want to keep following them, which is fine. But you know how sometimes there are people who they follow you, and then you follow them, but then they unfollow you, or then you realize you're really not that interested in their stuff? So I can check and see who has unfollowed me. I do find on Instagram, so many people, especially influencers, play the follow-unfollow game where they will follow me, and I'll look at their account and think, okay, all right, and I'll follow them back. And then the next day they have unfollowed. And I think that that is so tacky. I don't mind if you follow me and when I don't follow you back, you unfollow. That's fine because you didn't get anything from me, so we're even. But when you get me to follow you and then you dump me, I find that personally very uh, very tacky and not good etiquette. But So I go through and see who has done that and who I don't want to follow anymore. The other thing to keep in mind when you're doing a social media clean out is what accounts bring you down. Whether it's because you know the people, like maybe it's you've got an ex or you've got a, you know, somebody who used to be your friend or competitor in some way, Um, anything where you are following their accounts and it's making you sad or upsetting you or making you feel like you are not good enough, why are you looking at those accounts? Even some of the famous people, the ones that are supposed to be a little bit aspirational, if you're looking at that feeling down, like, why don't I have that? Or I'm never going to be that. Cut those accounts out. You don't need to be uh, following any accounts that bring you down that way. Something else I like to do on Twitter um, through Crowdfire is I can look and see which accounts I'm following are inactive. So if you're following some people on Twitter who haven't tweeted in a year, then you might as well unfollow them. And some people might say, well, who cares? If they're not tweeting, they're not filling up your feed and it doesn't matter. But for people in the blogging world, you don't want to have your following number a lot higher in proportion to the number of followers you have. So if there are people you're following that you can can um, can unfollow to bring that down. So again, people who are inactive. So you can see people who have been active for six months, three months, or one month and decide what your, what your cutoff is if you want to clean things out that way. But really going onto social media, it shouldn't be painful. You shouldn't be scrolling through tons of stranger stuff or people that you're following out of obligation. I know on Facebook, it's good in the sense where you can um, you can mute people or, or do things like that. I wish Instagram would have some sort of feature where you could hide 
people's posts. If it's somebody that you're sort of following out of obligation, but they post 50 pictures a day of their bird and you don't want to have 50 pictures a day of their bird in your feed, but they're your second cousin and you don't want to hurt their feelings. I wish there was something like that on Instagram, which there is not yet that I am aware of. The new year might be a good time for a social media clean out. So again, I use Crowdfire for Twitter and I use Unfollow for Instagram. The other favorite thing I want to share with you today is my new heated vest. So I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before or not, but I am always cold. There's got to be something wrong with me. Somebody from the school board office who once came to fix the heat in my room told me I just needed to gain some weight and then I would be fine. But I'm not going to try that option when I can find uh, clothing to help with the problem. So I was on the hunt for a heated coat or jacket for my daily yard duty that I have with my kindergarten kids. And first I ordered a really expensive one from out of country, um, really expensive, but I thought it's going to be worth it if it makes yard duty not painful for me every day. So I ordered it, I got it, set it all up, and it just wasn't good enough. I mean, it had a bit of a warming effect, but certainly not good enough for what I paid for it. So I returned that one. And then I was talking to a friend at work whose husband does a lot of work outside with his job. And he said, the jacket's not the way to go. What you need to do is get a heated layer that goes under a jacket because the jacket provides the insulation. So it kind of made sense to me. Um, she brought in his hoodie for me to try out. And, uh, and then I did that with my jacket over top and I could see how the heat really did stay in that way. But I decided not to go with a hoodie because my North Face parka that I always wear, it's slim in the arms to start with and the heated hoodies don't have any heat in the arms. It's just regular sleeves. So what I ended up going with was the same make and everything. So it's Milwaukee, but I went with a heated vest so I can actually just put the vest on over my shirt and then put my jacket on over top. And I find that it is amazing. It has heat in the chest and in the back. It's got a battery and it's like a massive battery because it's like a Milwaukee drill battery. They're all interchangeable. So the battery goes in a little pack on the back, which is not, not, not a perfect system, but it heats up really nicely, heats up very quickly. There's low, medium and high settings. I've only ever used the high, but I put it on just a couple minutes before I go outside, put the jacket on, zip it up, and it really does warm me up. I'm still not outside feeling super toasty and cozy, but I I paid $1.99 um, Canadian for the vest through Home Depot. So I ordered it online. They didn't have it in my store, but you can find them online. It's the Milwaukee M12 Women's Heated Vest. And uh, very, very happy with it. I would definitely recommend it if keeping warm outside is something that's important to you. And I will have a link to that vest in my show notes for today. So it'll be at thismomloves.ca slash podcasts. And you can click on episode 13 for all of that information. As I mentioned, I am on social media and cleaning up my accounts. If you would like to find me there, I'd love to follow you back, of course. I am on Twitter and Facebook at This Mom Loves, on Instagram at Kate This Mom Loves, and my website is www.thismomloves.ca. Moving into the lifestyle section of the show today and head lice. So I have firsthand experience with this. It was six years ago, right before Christmas, when the principal came to my classroom, because my girls go to uh, the same school where I teach, to tell me that both of them had been found with lice. So I got the parent volunteer to check my head and yes, indeed, I had it as well. So 
I have done a lot of research on this based on my own experiences at home, 19 years of teaching, seeing it in my classrooms, and also my professional research skills. I've written a lot of health-related articles before, so I went to all of the most reliable, trustworthy medical sites to compile a bunch of information that I'm going to share with you today. It's also in a blog post that I'll link to all about the best ways to treat head lice. So first thing you need to know is lice are the live bugs. They're about the size of a sesame seed. They're brownish in color. When my husband and I went to New York City and saw um, Live with Regis and Kelly several years ago when Regis was still there, Kelly had been talking about getting um, lice out of her daughter's hair. And then in the commercial break, she came up in the audience and was talking about how they're so hard to get out of hair because they're the exact color of, and she pointed at me and said, that lady's hair. So a nice brownish color. The nits are the eggs and they're sort of a whitish gray, tan or yellow, and they're what sticks to the hair really close to the scalp. They can look like dandruff, but they're a lot harder to budge. So if you can kind of flick the flake away, probably dandruff, don't worry about it. But if it's kind of stuck to that shaft of the hair, it it may be a knit. It takes seven to 10 days for newly laid nits to hatch. And that's an important fact to keep in mind when you're treating lice, seven to 10 days before a new egg is going to hatch into a new louse. So removing lice is a multi-step process. So chemical treatments from drugstores, you can get them over the counter prescription, can be used to kill the live bugs. And I know there are some people who want to go the all natural route. That's perfectly fine, but it's highly recommended by a lot of experts that you do um, go the chemical route, but you do it however you want. There is some evidence to indicate that lice are becoming resistant to some of the popular chemical ingredients. So it's a very, uh, very tricky game. Complete physical removal of the lice and nits without chemicals can work, but I would leave that to the professionals. The girls and I went to a place in Toronto called Knitwits because I had done some advertising for them, and so they gave me a good deal to come back and, and give us a, a hand, kind of literally. They uh, picked the uh, the nits out one by one and actually physically removed everything from the hair. Chemicals will kill, a lot of chemicals will kill the the bugs that are in the hair, but not the eggs. There are some treatments I have read now that do claim to kill the eggs too, but I haven't heard of anybody having experience with that. Usually you count on the chemical killing the live bugs, but you still need to do something about, about the eggs as well. Then next, what you want to do after using the chemical is comb out the hair so that any, you can get rid of the dead bugs, and then any live ones don't have an opportunity to lay more eggs. So if the chemical, for some reason, didn't didn't kill a bug or two, you're combing them out. So a very narrow, um, narrow-toothed lice comb is really helpful for this. And then you also want to pull out as many of those teeny tiny nits that are attached right near the scalp, those eggs, pull out as many of those as possible so that they don't end up hatching. There are some chemical treatments that say you don't need to do a comb out afterwards, but I'm not sure why you still wouldn't want to do a comb out just to get rid of any any bugs that are in there. After you've done that, you've gotten rid of any bugs that you can, you've picked out any of the tiny little nits, the eggs that you can, what do you do next? So you want to check with your daycare or your school what their policies are. I know our local health unit says that lice are a nuisance, they're not a health concern, and that students shouldn't be excluded from school because of them. In my opinion, I feel like to be socially responsible, you do those steps. You do something, put something on the hair, you comb out, you get rid of all of the bugs, and you try to pick out all of the nits. If you've done that, you've done your due diligence and can send your child back to school. It's very likely you missed a bug or a nit. It's possible, but you could drive yourself crazy about it. Now, the good news, like I said, is it takes seven to 10 days for a nit to hatch into a new louse, and then seven to 10 days for a new bug to mature and lay eggs of its own. So one teeny tiny 
um, egg still stuck in the hair is not necessarily um, devastating. You don't need to panic even if you see one bug. You just need to make sure you keep combing them out. Because if you comb the bugs out before they can lay more eggs, then the whole cycle will stop. A lot of chemical products that you use recommend retreating after 7 to 10 days so that any bugs that happen to have hatched from remaining nits get killed in that cycle. What I found helpful that was recommended to me by the ladies at Knitwits was white conditioner comb outs after the whole first treatment was done. So you dampen the child's hair, coat it in a white conditioner, and then use the knit comb to do really small sections starting at the front and then wiping the comb on a white paper towel after each pass. So you can see right there on the paper towel the results if you've caught any bugs or anything is there. And then just repeat it every couple of days. So as long as you're making sure that any newly hatched bugs are getting out of the hair throughout that seven to 10 days, they're not going to be able to lay any more eggs and the cycle will be stopped. When we were at Knitwits, they also gave us a mint spray to use to help repel lice in the future. I mean, there's no regular spray like that that's going to kill lice or absolutely prevent them, but there are certain scents, apparently like mint, that lice don't like. So if my daughter had mint spray all over her head and sat next to a kid who did have lice, the lice might not be too interested. So little things like that might be helpful as well. And then in terms of all of your stuff that you have, people tend to panic sometimes too and spend days doing house cleaning. Lice can't live away from the scalp for more than one to two days. So even things like blankets, pillows, stuffed animals, if they haven't been used in days and days, then there will not be any live lice on them. To be on the safe side, you should wash any bedding or clothing, including outerwear, don't forget the hats and coats and things, that has been used within the last few days. Use a hot wash and the highest heat dryer setting as possible. Things like stuffed animals, fabrics that have been used can be put in an airtight bag for two weeks or you can freeze them just to be sure. And vacuum surfaces like mattresses, rugs, upholstered furniture, and car seats. Sometimes I wonder with my girls if they originally got it from movie seats because nobody else in the school that that was found anyway, had lice at the same time as them. We have absolutely no idea. We did not hear of anybody before or after, but we had been to a movie theater. So it's it's my guess. And we also knew from um, the lady at Nitwits telling us that Eva had had it for much longer than Olivia. So I'm thinking Eva got it from a movie theater seat, maybe, who knows, and then passed it on to Olivia and passed it on to me. A few little fun facts to keep in mind as well. Knits and lice are no indication of cleanliness. Some sources actually say that lice prefer clean hair. And then I know when some parents hear that, they stop washing their children's hair when they know that there's a lice outbreak. I would just continue uh, business as usual when there is lice in your in your children's classes. But... And lice spread through hair-to-hair -hair contact or sharing items like brushes or hats. They don't fly. Um, they can crawl really, really quickly and can appear to be jumping. But what I read recently is they don't actually jump. They can just crawl super, super fast to get from one hair to the next. And another thing to keep in mind is if you think that your child got lice again, fairly soon after having it before, it's extremely likely that it's more a case of having lice still. Because as I mentioned, you could have that one knit, that one bug, if something doesn't get caught, it can just continue. So a lot of parents a month later will say, well, I don't know who they got it back from again. Maybe they didn't. It might be very likely that it's just sort of a case of having it still and needing to, to keep getting rid of it. And in terms of the itchiness, the, the itch on the heads is caused to an allergic reaction that we have to the saliva secreted by the lice when they bite the scalp. If you were wondering about that, and I want to know how many of you are itching your heads right now. 
But every itchy head is not an indicative of a lice, so keep that in mind too. So hopefully that um, that is helpful to you, whether you are dealing with lice right now or whether you're just being prepared in case you ever have to deal with it in the future. My special guest today is Alana McGinn. She is a sleep consultant or color sleep coach and educator. She's also a mom and she's the founder of the Goodnight Sleep Site. And I'm so excited to tap into her expertise today. Welcome, Alana. Thanks so much for having me. Now, before I get into all these sleep questions from my listeners, I want to tell everyone just the story of when I first met you, because a few months ago, Alana and I were both asked to be part of a panel of judges for the Savvy Mom Awards. And I had met one of the other judges before, so we kind of said hello briefly, but I didn't really know anybody. And there was this awkward moment where people were standing around talking, and I was talking to someone and they had to go, and I was just kind of wishing I could, you know, join another group. And I kind of wandered over to where Alana was standing with some other people. She spotted me. She said, come on over here, Kate. And she stood back and opened up the group and said, oh, we were just talking about, and that's the part I don't even remember what you were talking about. But I just thought that was so wonderful that you did that. And those tiny things, especially when it's first impressions, really mean a lot. So that's the kind of person Alana is. Thank you for that, Alana. I have been there. I'm I'm that person that hates walking into a room where you know no one. Like I would mm-hmm. honestly rather like pull off every fingernail than have to do that. <laughs> um, so I know what it's like just to kind of, so I saw you and I saw your conversation had ended. So I just wanted to pull you into ours and yeah. Well, thank you. Because for an introvert, that can be painful. So I appreciate it. But let's get down to what you do. So first of all, just tell us about Goodnight Sleep Site and what your work is. So we work, so Goodnight Sleep Site, we are a, a family pediatric uh, sleep consulting practice. So we work with babies up to adults to help um, teach better sleep skills and to teach proper sleep health for the whole family. Um, I have a team of consultants. So we have uh, over 20 consultants throughout Canada and the US. Um, primarily, our, our company is working with uh, children. So working with babies up to toddlers um, and working with families that way. And we put sleep plans together. And then obviously a big part of what we do is supporting the parents and the families through those sleep plans um, and helping their children sleep better. Wonderful. And that is such a helpful service. So I'm going to dig right into questions here. And let's start with babies and the whole nighttime sleeping issue. So sleep training, there's so many different ways people describe it. It can get a really bad rap, but how do you define it? And in terms of getting babies to sleep at night, what's the best way to go about it? So for me, sleep training is teaching your child independent sleep skills so that they are able to fall back to sleep on their own. Often we hear the term sleeping through the night, right? And as new parents, you are probably asked that question like with a two-day-old, oh, is your baby sleeping through the night? Like, (laughs) no, my baby's not. But here's the thing. No child, no baby, no adult sleeps through the night. So I always try and kind of clarify that in saying that, we don't, no one sleeps through the night. We are all waking up what we call partial arousal in between sleep phases throughout the night. And to me, sleeping through the night is once you are able to fall back asleep, fall back into that next sleep cycle without needing any kind of external prop, whether that me, that be, you know, rocking to sleep, feeding to sleep, uh, parents putting the soother in or whatever parents are doing, lying in the bed with your child to, for your child to fall asleep. Once an individual is able to fall back into the next cycle of sleep on their own without needing any of that, to me, that is sleeping through the night. Okay. And how can we get our babies to do so? 
Uh, okay. So to teach your child to sleep through the night, well, we work with, at Good Night Sleep Site, we work with um, what we call four key sleep tools. So uh, the first tool being, you know, often when we hear the term sleep training, we often hear the, we often think of the method, right? We hear the term cried out. Will I have to let my baby cry? Um, and what we try to explain to parents is that choosing the method is only one tool within our good night sleep toolkit. And it's like the smallest tool. It's really the smallest part of the overall sleep plan. And it's really important to put um, all the pieces of the puzzle together. So one piece being, or one tool being, you know, a, a consistent sleep environment, a safe sleep environment, especially when we're dealing with our little babies, um, and a, a conducive environment to sleep. The other tool being naps, you know, making sure that our, our children are getting and our babies are getting age appropriate consolidated naps throughout the day. Um, the other tool or piece of the puzzle is bedtime. You know, are we practicing that consistent bedtime routine? Is our child, are children going down to bed at age appropriate bedtimes? Um, then the last tool is the method. So once all those pieces of the puzzle are put together or, you know, all those tools are within that toolbox, that's when you can really start incorporating that plan and, and getting your child sleeping well. But you can't just kind of choose one and just go with that. Okay. So still sticking with babies for a moment, I had one listener who asked, what's your best advice for getting a four-month-old to nap? But I'm sure there are people listening whose babies might not be exactly four months old. But I know with my daughters, I kind of gave them the first three months and thought, okay, you had nine months inside and you get three months outside where it can be feeding on demand. And, you know, if you're not sleeping through the night, that's totally fine. And whatever that case may be. My, in my opinion, I thought for my girls, they were ready around three months to get into a bit more of a routine. So I don't know if that's a, if that's a good age or not. I'm sure there are different ages where it's right. But in terms of babies and napping, what's a good way to establish some healthy routines there? So typically, I mean, just to answer your question on when to start, we don't actually start working with clients until baby is at least four to four and a half months of age. So you are on the right, the right path for sure. I always tell parents in that fourth trimester to take the pressure off because, mm -hmm. you know, right away you're hearing people asking you, is your baby sleeping through the night? And you're reading sleep books and you're listening to, you know, sleep experts like myself and Googling this, that, and the other. And you're thinking that your child at, you know, say two months of age needs to be sleeping through the night. So take the pressure off. There's nothing that you are doing within that four month, provided you're practicing safe sleep practices, because as a sleep professional, I always have to discuss that. Mm -hmm. Provided you're doing that, there's nothing that you're doing that can't be, um, I don't want to use the word fixed, uh, that can't be changed once your child is four months of age. And that's when you can really start taking control. So you know, to help a child nap better, really at four months of age is when you can really start working on those consolidated naps. Um, so, you know, at four months of age, you're probably probably looking at a morning nap, an afternoon nap, and then a shorter cat nap in the late afternoon. Um, morning and afternoon, you, you, you'd want to, your goal would be to achieve that hour and a half nap per nap for the morning and the afternoon. Anything less than an hour really is not enough of a consolidated sleep. But unfortunately, that's what we tend to see is those cat nappers, right? So those mm -hmm. 30 to 45 minute nappers, because what's happening is that's a natural sleep cycle for a baby that age. So what, what I was saying before is we want to teach them to get back into that next cycle of sleep because that's going to help kind of lengthen those 45 minute naps to that hour or hour and a half that we want to achieve but during the day, our, their drive for sleep isn't as strong. So it's harder for them to get into that next cycle of sleep. It's not impossible. They're completely capable of doing it. But the one tip that I always give parents at that age or at any age when they're starting to work on naps is don't give up. 
naps aren't going to come together in a day. They're not going to come together in a week. They probably won't come together in two weeks. You really have to work on um, being as consistent as you can in where you're putting them down. So again, bringing it back to that consistent sleep environment, safe and conducive. Um, when you're putting them down, so making sure you're working with, you know, an age appropriate nap schedule for the child baby's age, um, and then how you're handling those short waking. So if your baby is waking at that 30 to 45 minute mark, are you rushing in right away to either end the nap? Cause you think it's over because baby's waking up crying, or are you rushing in to kind of help baby get back into that next cycle of sleep? It's not to say where you have to let baby cry it out. But sometimes I always tell babies or parents, you know, stop, wait, and listen. See if they can do it, even if it's just two minutes. Mm-hmm. Maybe lengthen that two minutes to five minutes and see if they can start working on that skills. Because at the end of the day, this we're all born with the ability to sleep, but to fall asleep on our own is a skill that we have to learn. We need to allow them the time to practice that skill throughout the day, throughout the night. So give them that opportunity during the day to lengthen out that nap and keep plugging away at it every day. Okay. That's great. Thank you. So there's a bit of a theme in the next few listener questions. So I'm going to list off all the questions and then kind of talk about the theme I see here. So how do I get my daughter to sleep past 4 a.m.? What do I do about a four-year-old who keeps coming into our room at 4 a.m.? And that's a different, <laughs> different person asking that question. How to teach kids five and three years not to wake up and crawl into mommy and daddy's bed at 5 a.m.? So those people are getting one more hour. And then a bit of a variation. Are we doing any harm letting the child get in bed with us if they have a nightmare in the night rather than calming them in their rooms? So there's kind of two parts to this. So is there a trick to getting kids to stay a little longer or sleep a little longer in their own room in the mornings? And then also what's the parenting response when they come right over to your room? Right. So typically when we see early morning wakings, um, that to me is a sign of an overtired child. So I know logically we would think if we put our baby to bed uh, earlier, they will wake up earlier because that's how we work as adults, right? But what I think parents have to understand, and probably this is the biggest misconception I think that we see with new parents is they don't understand the sleep needs of the child and how much sleep they actually need. You know, when you're looking at babies, even when you're looking at toddlers, preschoolers, I mean, I know you probably see it in with what you do. They need a lot of sleep. You know, you're Mm -hmm. looking at, um, you know, 10 to 12 hours per night in that age group, you know, 15 to 14 hours per 24 hours with our little, little guys, our little ones. Um, so the earlier, when I'm seeing early morning wakings, that's showing me that sleep is getting lost somewhere because if a child is going down to bed overtired, so perhaps maybe naps aren't together yet, they're not getting enough consolidated sleep throughout the day, or bedtime is being pushed out way too late, and now our our baby or our child is going down to bed overtired, you're going to see more restless sleep throughout the night, so more night wakings, and an earlier wake time in the morning. So when we're seeing early morning wakings, I tend to say, let's move bedtime earlier, Let's focus on naps, get naps if the child is still napping. Let's get naps more consolidated, whether we're dealing with two or one naps, um, and get bedtime earlier so the child's going down to bed better rested, therefore sleeping more restfully throughout the night and actually longer in the morning. When we're dealing with our older kids, so now when we're getting into toddlers, preschoolers, um, you know, school-aged children, and we're seeing, you know, them coming out of their rooms and we're seeing kind of those behavioral things. The fundamentals are the same. So, you know, listing off the four key sleep tools that that I spoke about earlier, that all applies still at that age. But now there's also 
the setting boundaries and setting limits. And I always ask parents of toddlers, you know, who's training who? (laughs) And parents don't like the answer because it's always the toddler that's training the parent, right? So it's taking that control back. And it doesn't have to be in a you know, a yelly way. I'm trying to think of the word I want to use, like, you know, in a (laughs) dominant way, but just so that they understand that, you know, the parent is in control of bedtime and, you know, the bedtime battles you'll see cease because when we give our kids the control of bedtime or whether or not they can come out of their room, sure, they want the control, but I mean, you know, this having that control, that's where we see those behavioral things because they don't know what's going to happen next because suddenly they're in control of it. Right. Mm So yeah. Um, you know, bringing in those boundaries, bringing in those routines, whether that be leading your child back to bed, um, if they're coming out of the room, toddler clocks can work really great in that age group, preschoolers as well, if they can't tell the time yet, just to have those visual cues of when it's time to go to bed or wake up in the morning. Um, yes. But really being consistent in setting those limits and boundaries for sure. Yeah. And we did use, um, we had a little clock where we would set what time it kind of went bright and yellow and they knew that those were the times you're allowed to be out of bed. And then when it was kind of that pale blue nighttime one, they knew that was in bed. So even though they didn't know what the numbers were, you are not getting out of that bed until the bright, (laughs) the bright light comes on it. Exactly. And how do we know with our kids what the best bedtime is? When we're thinking about older kids, not so much babies, but like you said, sort of the preschooler, school age kids, how do you know what time they should get to bed? Yeah. So, I mean, just to kind of give parents a kind of a gauge, I don't even recommend putting two-year-olds to sleep past seven. So I'm, those who know me and know good night sleep site and follow me know that I am an early bedtime pusher. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe in the, the value of an early bedtime. Now I have three kids. Um, you know, my eldest is 11 and my youngest are twins. They're going to be eight in March. Um, and their bedtimes are getting later as they get older. And I'm struggling with that <laughs> because yeah. like by me time is gone. <laughs> but so those who are fighting the early bedtime, enjoy it while you have it. Um, but I am, I mean, even my seven-year-olds now go to sleep at eight, um, eight 30. So, you know, I, I'm a big believer in the early bedtime and making sure, because you also have to understand it's not just about the quantity of sleep. It's also about the quality of sleep and the quality of sleep your child will get from say 6 PM. I'm not saying you have to put your child down to bed at 6 PM, but from say 6 PM to midnight, um, is a lot better quality of sleep, meaning more restful, more deep sleep than they'll get after that. So if you're pushing that bedtime out too late, you're losing out on all that good quality, deep sleep that they really need to, you know, repair and restore. Okay. And just on that same note, I mean, my daughter's about to turn 13 and I still have her kind of like lights out around nine because yeah. I, I, I mm-hmm. I'm the same as you. I really value sleep for kids and for myself um, and want to get to sleep. But I know I've heard that when they get to be teens and their body clocks are kind of different, they're more naturally awake later at night. But the problem is she's still going to have her alarm going off at 6.15 in the morning. Yeah. So do we kind of just fight the body clock? Well, so and that's the issue, right? And that's what we see happening is once the, your child, your children do hit a certain age, once they actually start going through puberty, the time in which their body releases melatonin. So melatonin is our natural sleep hor- hormone. It shifts and it shifts later at night. So biologically speaking, they have a harder time falling asleep earlier. So my daughter is 11. She, she also has a nine o'clock bedtime, but I'm already starting to notice even at 11 that she could probably go a lot later, but I'm not Mm -hmm. ready for her to go a lot later, but I'm seeing that shift happening. Um, and what happens is there's actually a lot of organizations that are trying to get schools to start later high schools, because exactly what you said, 
what happens is even though we're giving them maybe that 10 o'clock bedtime, you know, for our older kids, they can't fall asleep until say 11 or 12 for a few mm-hmm. reasons. One is the reason that I just mentioned. There's also increase in activities, increase in schoolwork, like all of those reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're not falling asleep later, but they still have to get up. I mean, some of these kids in high school are getting up at, to catch a school bus at say seven o'clock in the morning, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I feel like society is slowly catching up to that. And there's a lot more talk about things like that happening. But, you know, what I can say to parents is try to protect your child's sleep as best you can. And little things that you can do, one for our big kiddos is definitely removing that tack. You know, their social life is their be all and end all at that age. Mm -hmm. And if you're allowing things like TV and phones and computers and iPads and things like that in their room, that's only going to be robbing them of even more sleep. So little steps like that that you can do to try and promote more sleep. But, you know, there's only so much you can do if if their body's kind of not telling them to fall asleep till say 12 or one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Okay. So I love how you just mentioned natural melatonin, which occurs in our bodies. I'm curious to know, what do you think about melatonin supplements for kids or for adults? So, I mean, I have a lot... You know, I, I'm not a big pusher of mel- a melatonin supplement. And the reason why that is, is um, I, I don't believe, I think it's very rare to be deficient in melatonin. Like I said, it is a natural hormone that we all have. Mm-hmm. I'm not to say that there aren't some individuals who perhaps need it. So for instance, I know for our kids, it can work really well with kids who perhaps have ADHD and are on certain medications. Some children who are also on the spectrum can be uh, can use it. For adults, we're seeing a lot of you know individuals that travel and are going through a lot of different time changes or suffer from maybe like circadian rhythm disorders. I think it can be useful. I feel like because melatonin is so readily available now and it's just over the counter, I, I feel like a lot of people are using it as a sleep aid, like a sleeping pill where, and that's not what it is. Um, the synthetic ones that you can buy now, the s- synthetic supplements that you can buy now don't release the melatonin as your body naturally does. People maybe aren't taking the right amount, uh, right amount, uh, the right quantities. They're not taking it at the right time. So the timing's off. So I would prefer to see supplements used more like magnesium, um, things like that over melatonin. It's very rare that I'll, I'll um, suggest melatonin, especially for the kids. I'm seeing way, in my opinion, way too many kids, even babies using melatonin when it's just not necessary. Okay. Yeah. Um, in terms of other types of sleeps, a- sleep aids, we hear all the time about special mattresses and pillows and you know all these ads that are out there that they have magical sleep benefits. Is there any truth to this? And I mean, I'm in the market for a new mattress myself, so I'd love to know, is there something I should be looking for when it comes to mattresses and pillows that is there anything that's actually proven to help with sleep? So, I mean, in ter- see, it's hard for me to answer. A lot of people say, what's the best mattress to buy? It's really such an individual purchase. Uh, purchase. So it's really hard for me to be like, buy this one, do this. What I will say is, Yes, I do agree with the fact that your mattress, you have to understand your mattress is probably the most important piece of furniture that you will own because we spend one third of our life sleeping. So that's mm-hmm. a big chunk of time on a piece of furniture that we tend to not kind of put any value in. You know, we spend a ton of money on a new couch or a new table, but not on what we're spending the most time on. And that's our mattress. So Everyone should be auditing their mattress every five to eight years um, and seeing if it's time to get a new one. I know many people who have had their mattresses for many, especially parents, because 
our kind of mattress needs are put on the back burner because we're so busy buying new beds and new cribs and this and that and the <laughs> other for our kids, right? Um, so yes, definitely investing in a good mattress. It really is dependent on the person. Like I said, there's um, there's great foam mattresses. There's great inner spring coils. The best thing that you can do is actually physically go to a store, talk to the sleep experts at those stores. They know um, what they're talking about. They they understand the mattress. They will understand your needs and really test it out. Like give it a good lie down and stay there for a good 10, 15, you know, like really give it a good test run. There's a lot of great mattress companies now that are available online, like a lot of mattresses in the boxes, which can be great, but I'm still old school. I'm still a believer in actually testing out the mattress because I mm-hmm. think it's really important. Okay. So I'm curious with all of the experience you have over the years. So first in terms of kids sleep, what do you think are the biggest mistake that parents make when it comes to babies and children's sleep? I think there's a few. I think one of the biggest mistakes that parents make when it comes to babies um, is that they start too soon. So like I said, they start in that fourth trimester um, and baby just biologically speaking, isn't ready to start having those, you know, a consistent schedule meeting, set wake time, set nap time, set bedtime. So really give um, give your baby the right amount of time to have their natural uh, sleep rhythms or natural circadian rhythms start developing before you start implementing a more consistent sleep routine. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like I said, not really fully understanding the sleep needs of your child. So the right amount of sleep they need, um, the importance of sleep. This is, this is, you know, especially at good night sleep site, this is what we always tell our, our parents is our job is not just to help your child sleep better, but really to help you walk away as your child's sleep expert. So I don't want to sit there and say, do this, that, and that. I want you to be able to walk away and understand why we did this, that, and that. So, mm-hmm. Um, it's really important to ed- understand the the education of sleep um, and 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 the sleep needs of your child and to put the the right plan together for your kids. And then what about adults and their own sleep? What do you think are the biggest mistakes that you see happening there? Um, I think the biggest mistakes for adults is we really just don't prioritize our sleep like we do other wellness aspects in our life. Um, I believe that we do live in a, in a sleep deprived society for many different reasons. Um, and I feel like we, I always say this, actually, I feel like we wear that badge of, uh, that, you know, sleep deprivation as a badge of honor. Um, you know, we feel like to be the best employee, we need to sleep less and to be the best parents, we need to sleep less to meet our kids needs 24 seven. And I'm not saying don't meet your kids needs because absolutely we need to, but, but during waking hours, (laughs) During waking hours, but I, what I try to try and explain to parents is your child also needs to have a healthy, sound mind parent. And if meeting your child's needs 24-7 isn't allowing you to be that parent, you're not really meeting your child's needs, if that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, sleep is is important for all members of the family. So just prioritizing it and understanding that sleep is one of the pillars of sleep, of, of health. So when you look at nutrition, exercise, sleep is the third pillar um, of, of health and wellness and really making sure that you're, you're making an important part of your life and working towards it, changing those habits so that you can sleep better. 
Well, Elena and I got disconnected right as she was finishing that last answer, so I did have a chance to thank her privately, but I would like to thank her publicly as well. Thank you so much, Elena, again, for sharing all of your amazing sleep expertise with us, and I will be providing links to Elena's site, Goodnight Sleep site, her social media accounts, as well as a link to her podcast, This Girl Loves Sleep, in the show notes for today's episode, so it is at thismumloves.ca slash podcasts, and again, this is episode 13. Also in the show notes, I will share a link to the apps that I use for my social media cleanouts, to my new heated vest, and also to my blog post with the full details about how to treat head lice. So fun. As always, I'd like to thank my editor, Lucas Wojcicki, and thank you all for listening. If you enjoy listening to This Mom Loves, I would love if you could rate it or review it on um, Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. If you could share it with a friend, even just tell somebody who you work with or uh, a neighbor or a relative, just anyone who you think might enjoy it, if you could tell them about it and even show them how to listen to podcasts. That seems to be the biggest thing people will say to me, oh, I'd love to listen to it, but what's a podcast? Where do I find it? How do I listen? So if you could do that for me and get somebody started, I would be really, really appreciative of that. And until next time, I hope you all have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening.